Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue our study through this book. And uh, we started chapter 3 last week. We didn't really get that far, so we'll try to see if we can get a little more in today. So, uh, I don't know, six verses. Sounds about right, eh? Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who builds the, built the house has more honor than the house." For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for testimony of the things which are spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Last week, we were instructed to consider Jesus. Consider the fact, according to the author, that Jesus' faithfulness to his calling is comparable to Moses' faithfulness. We have compared Jesus to the prophets, to the angels, and now comparing him to Moses. Moses, as we said last week, is one of the most talked about individuals in all of Hebrew history. Why? Well, because the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, enduring great, enduring great hardship and enduring great sufferings. So bad was the oppression that the Egyptians enforced population control on the Israelites by having the baby boys thrown into the Nile to drown and be eaten by the alligators. You will notice in Scripture, uh, the topic of killing babies and sacrificing babies is a reoccurring theme, and it's always Horrible. It's always a sinful act. Egypt did it to try to control the Jewish population. The Israelites sacrificed their own babies to false gods, and that was an abomination before the Lord. And then Herod tried to even stop the birth of the Messiah and uh, killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. That's part of our Christmas story. So in Scripture, killing, sacrificing children is always an evil act. Scripture asserts that God knows and calls people for divine purposes, even while they're in the womb. Paul said this, but when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace. Nowadays, people want to give reasons why they think it's okay to sacrifice their children, why abortion ought to be a right. But we know, based on the word of God, it's wrong to kill, especially helpless babies. With the midterm elections coming up, we ought to be most interested in knowing where the candidates stand on pro-life. One thing Jesus and Moses had in common is evil forces tried to have them both killed when they were babies. And evil forces today still like to see babies killed. When Egypt did it, Moses was spared. And when Moses grew up, he was called by God to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery. But it wasn't easy took great courage and faith for Moses to stand against Pharaoh and against all of Egypt. But God empowered Moses 
And God did miracles to validate Moses' calling, great signs and wonders, the ten plagues, the parting of the sea, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, and God's very presence in dwelling the tabernacle that the nation of Israel had built. And God spoke to Moses, and he led them along. And uh, Moses led the nation for 40 years. And Moses was given the law directly from God's hand. And Moses instructed the people on the law and the will of God and the entire religious system that the Jews follow even today came to them through Moses. But not just the Jews, it's our scripture too. We study Moses. He wrote the first five books of the Bible. We call those the books of the law. And uh, they are referred to many times in scripture as the law of Moses, which that's how affiliated it was with him and how important he was seen in Acts 13, for example. And through him, everyone who believed is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And then again, Paul, for it is written in the law of Moses. So Moses' influence has been felt for over 3,500 years. Not many people have that level of influence. You think America's founders, founding fathers were important. 246 years later, they're still important to many of us, but we have seen their influence waning in percentages of our population. We've seen the tearing down of statues of, of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Francis Scott Keyes, Ulysses S. Grant, and even Frederick Douglass. Those people had noble ideas that are now scorned. Meanwhile, I saw in the news <laughs> this, this one candidate for the upcoming election had herself filmed twerking while doing a handstand. Seriously? That's your campaign message. You despise Lincoln, but you think upside down twerking is admirable? We are rapidly descending from democracy to idiocracy in less than 250 years. Moses is still influential with hundreds of millions of people around the world 3,500 years later. So yeah, he's kind of a big deal. Moses got this status because Moses was faithful in the house of God. Faithful in the house of God. New term for us to study today, house. And boy, oh boy, does the author all of a sudden get locked in in these six verses on this concept of the house. And he uses it a lot. He says, house, 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 house. Holy. This term's going to be right some classic, eh? How many times we get to hear Pastor Rob say house in one sermon? Since the author uses the word house six times in these six verses, we's going to have to hear him biffing that Canadian accent all over the reading of this here particular portion of scripture, eh? I just thought I'd better acknowledge what everyone was thinking and get the house accent distraction out of the way because there's a lot of mention of house here. Okay? Covered it. Now, when we say house, we visualize the building that we dwell in. But that's not what the Hebrew reader visualizes. Oikos is the Greek word, and this word can be used for the physical dwelling place of the person, but it can also mean their estate, all their property, your land, your barns, your animals, your vineyard, your, your garage, your car, all your property. And in scripture, it also would mean the individuals residing on your property, so your family, but it also could include your servants. So they were all part of the household. And then the word could also refer to, in scripture, to one's descendants, tribe, and nation. So house can be used in all these different ways. Which way is the author using it here in chapter 3? 
Well, the context is supposed to help us to uh, interpret how he's using it, but uh, chapter 3 doesn't really clarify it. So then the next thing we would do as good Bible students is we'd say, well, where else in this book does the author use house and how does he use it? And he does in chapter 8. You want to turn over to chapter 8? Verse number 8. Uh, here's the, the term again. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then uh, in verse number 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be my people. Chapter 10, again, verse number 21. He says, having a high priest over the house of God. So that's consistent with chapter 3, the house of God. But then in chapter 11, verse number 7, one more time. By faith, Noah being warned of God of things not yet seen as of yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Ooh, that's a good term, by faith. We'll get into that one later on. Probably chapter 11, verse 7, illustrates and clarifies the author and the audience's use of the term the best. House is being referred, used to refer to one's family, right? Because Noah's not trying to save his property. He's not trying to save his material possessions. He's trying to save his house, which was his his wife and his three sons and their wives as well. So, chapter 7, verse number 2. Moses, it says, um, was faithful in his house. Who is his referring to? His house. Is it Moses' house? Or what's Moses' house? Or is that even what the author just said? So I noticed when I was studying that my version, the NASB that I'm reading, uh, capitalized all the third person singular pronouns. The he's and his, anybody else got them capitalized in theirs? Okay, some of you got those capitalized. That's because the um, interpreter is telling you those pronouns are in reference to God, right? So I said, well, let's reread chap uh, chapter 3, verse 2 with the proper names instead of the pronouns. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed Jesus as Moses also was in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. It's not Moses' house that the author is speaking of. It's God's house. The nation of Israel are God's chosen people. Well, Moses is one of those people, so he's part of the house, but it's not his house. Is that a good interpretation? Is what, what the author is trying to communicate? Well, I believe so, because verse number four, for every house is built by some man, but he that builds all things is, is God, right? So I think that kind of sums it up there. Judah, Israel, the Hebrew people, the recipients of the book, and even us, we are the household of God. Moses, verily, faithful in his house as a servant for the testimony of the things which are spoken after. But, verse number six, Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to the confidence. 
The author's point here is Moses, as great as he was, was part of the house. What did he say he was? What did he call him? A, a servant in the house. Jesus, on the other hand, he called a what? A son. So an heir to the, the house. The son of the builder. And he's counted more worthy than, for, counted worthy of more glory. Which was a great choice of songs that we sang here. Because that really tied in with this passage. Well, so the builder, the owner of the house is God. Jesus is the son, the heir. So where is Moses in comparison in the hierarchy compared to Jesus? He's worthy of more glory, the author of Hebrews says. Once again, our audience is contemplating abandoning Jesus, not holding fast to their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, but rather returning to the Moses system of animal sacrifices. And they're telling themselves, well, I'm not disobeying God. We're, we're being faithful to God because we're following Moses and the laws of Moses. And that's always been the way to God. So we're okay. We're good. And the author says, no, Moses is not the builder of the house. Moses is not the son. You can't reject the son, the will of the father and say, Moses said so. Moses is just a servant. So my home is down in Piney Point, and it's part of a community of 26 other homes, and the community is called Potomac Beach, and all 25 homeowners, along with me, have joint ownership over what the HOA calls common area. Common area is all the land, the driveways, the grass, the dumpster, the beach, and the pier, and we all pay dues for the upkeep and the maintenance of this common area. And I really like that because I don't have to cut any grass. It's not my grass. It's common area, and the HOA has to cut it, and that's what the dues go to. So that's cool. So my, it's, it's my beach and my pier, along with the other homeowners, and we share, and we can invite our friends over to uh, visit with us on our beach. For the most part, I know my 25 other neighbors. Uh, I don't know all of their family and friends, and sometimes I'll see someone I don't recognize on the beach, and uh, only I'll say, who's that on the beach? I get out the binoculars. <laughs> You gotta keep an eye on these things, you know. I'm I'm the president of this HOA. Eh? I got I gotta make sure we, people on the beach shouldn't be there. And it's like, oh well, I recognize. Okay, well I, I recognize that's uh, that's Don and Deb. Okay, so that's Don and Deb's family. All right, all right, good. Don't have to go get them. However, every once in a while, there's people outside our community who wander down to our beach and use our pier, and because uh, they just assume it's open to the public. So one day I'm on the pier and there's this guy and his girlfriend and some kids with them, and none of my neighbors are there. It's just these people alone. And uh, so I, I says, uh, in a friendly, yet direct manner, uh, hey, where do you guys live? Where are you from? And uh, as I suspected, they weren't from our community. And the lady says, oh, well, we live in this community over here. But my friend said that this beach and pier is open to all of us to use. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. This is a, a private property, and it's only to be used by the residents of Potomac Beach, which, by the way, is exactly what the sign says that's posted on the beach and on the pier. Right there. Their friend from another community misinformed them. She did not have any ownership, and thus she has no authority to make such a claim. However, me, a legal owner of Beach and Pier, has more authority than the word of her friend. All her friend was giving her was wishful thinking, but it wasn't true. After I corrected the false narrative, 
about the legal access to the beach. I said, well, you folks have a nice day. And I walked away and I didn't try to run them off or you know, do a citizen's arrest or anything like that. I, I just left them to decide uh, what they would do, what action they would take based on the information I gave them. And to their credit, they rounded up their kids and they left without offense. The point is, if someone is the owner, they have authority over the property. So these people that the author of Hebrews is speaking to are acting like the trespassers. Oh, my friend says it's okay. Moses says, well, first of all, Moses is not God. And second of all, Moses never said he has authority over God. He never said it's his house. Verse 4, the builder of all things is God. And that statement right there just moved this discussion over here to 2022. House of Judah, House of Israel, Moses, Old Testament, whatever. What's that got to do with me? God is the builder of all things, meaning God is the owner of all things. And the official theological word is God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all. This is as much a commentary about our lives as it is about the Hebrews' lives. Really? Do we see that anywhere else? Is the house of God used to relate to churches or Christians in other passages of Scripture? Well, Paul uses that imagery, doesn't he? In Ephesians, he says, then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens and saints, and we are of, the, of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the apostles are the foundation, and then all of us, we're all part fitting together, built on Christ. And Peter uses the same Illustration in 1 Peter chapter 2. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a, here it is, spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So living stones stacked on one top of another, building a spiritual house. And then Paul by the way, even points to the fact that our bodies are, in fact, tabernacles. They are living, literal temples, dwelling places for the third part member of the Holy Trinity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? So the idea of being a spiritual house is both symbolic and literal. We are living stones joined together to form this household. We are literally the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? Am I uh, wallpaper that's just supposed to hang around and do nothing? Am I the floor that everybody's supposed to walk me all over me? What does that mean to be in the household? What part do I play in this family? Am I a little baby who screams when I want something? Hurt myself and poop my pants? Am I... An angsty teen who complains, doesn't get their way, and storms off to my room? Or am I one of the responsible adults who does the housework and tries to stay on top of things and makes a to-do list and tries to keep everyone serving together? This time of year is hay season. Where I lived in Nova Scotia, the Mosterds would ask me if I would join their 
their farm crew back in the day when I was young and strapping and could do work. Uh, Conrad and Minnie came over from Holland in the 60s and they bought this land and then they built a farm and they had uh, three kids and two of the boys uh, worked with their dad on the farm. And once the boys grew up and, and they wanted to get married, Conrad went out and bought houses right on the same road as the farm and um, for the boys and their wives. The farm, Conrad and Minnie, owned everything. All the barns, the livestock, the equipment, and the houses for their sons and their own house. But once the boys came of age, Conrad then gave them a percentage, a part ownership in all of it. So they were more than just the kids. They were more than just employees. They had ownership and thus inheritance in the farm. And once the boys got married and their, their wives likewise would pitch in with the farming, especially during hay season, Conrad and the boys would drive all the, the tractors and the, and the uh, expensive farm equipment. But us farmhands, they just stuff us up in a hay mow and throw bales of hay at us. And we're supposed to figure out how to, how to get them all packed in there. And this would go on all day long and into the evening until the barns were full of hay. It was a big job and the good crew was needed. So we work all afternoon and we take a break for supper. And then Minnie and the daughter-in-laws, they would, they would bring this big supper out for us. And we'd kind of sit out there in the lawn. And, uh, you know, it'd be just everything you'd expect from a big Canadian meal, roast beef and gravy and, and uh, vegetables. And then, because uh, in cold countries, we pickle everything. So all kinds of preserves and homemade breads. And, oh, I'm hungry now. Why did I do that? <laughs> so good. <laughs> need, we need an auction or something. We could get some uh, smoked meat or something, right, Jennifer? Yeah, so it would just be this big supper. It'd be like 20, 30 people, eh? Because you'd have all their families and then all the farmhands. And uh, as time went on, eventually Derek, the youngest, bought these aging parents out and the ownership of the farm moved over to him. And Derek had five kids. I think it was five, eh? And uh, they also worked with uh, dad on the farm. Meanwhile, Conrad and Minnie, they stayed in their home and they helped out as much as they were able. So the Mostard family farm continues on passing down from one generation to another, and probably Hendrik and Luke are in line to inherit it next. So this is a good way to illustrate the idea of a household as the Hebrews would think of it. Lots of people at different ages, yet everyone has a job to do and a role to play. Once you, if you're born on a farm, once you can walk, you get chores. You know, here's your bucket, go get the eggs. You know, you get something that you have to do. The nation of Israel, when they were led out of Egypt, they were all one big family. One people, the children of Abraham, and God led them into the promised land. And then they were given portions of all the promised land based on the 12 tribes. Each tribe was given a portion. And then the families of those tribes, they were given a portion of that portion. And then the people raised their livestock and grew their crops and planted their vineyards. And they were all their families living there on that farm. Their whole family would be right there on that piece of land, just like my friends, the Mosterts. And that land was what the family would build their household on. The house was all encompassing for that family. It was their very identity. Is this how you feel about being of the house of God? Is it your identity? Or is it just some side thing you do on a Sunday, attend church for an hour, some people compartmentalize, you know, God's good for certain holidays and it comes in handy at funeral time. And uh, if you have a serious crisis, you know, God's good in a pinch. But otherwise, I've got a lot of other things I want to be a part of. I've got other things I need to focus on right now. Moses had his time and he played a significant role in the house. 
He was faithful servants. And he passed on. But the house of God continues. And it has grown right up until our time here in 2022. And this is our time. Back in the 70s and the 80s, I was just a child in the household. I would just go down to my Sunday school classes, and, and I'd go to Awana, and I would go to youth group, and I'd go to Bible camps, and I came of age in the 90s, and I'm learning my place in the house. I've been working on it for 30 years now, trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing here. And 15 of it has been right here in Southern Maryland with you all. This is our time to serve the house of God. But you know, Faith Bible Church didn't start with me. It didn't just pop up here on the side of 235 out of nowhere. No, this place was developed and grew out of the faithfulness and the ministry efforts of SESA Bible Church. They planted us 30 years ago. That's why we're celebrating our 30th anniversary. So go get your t-shirt from Suzanne. But we have been built upon the faithfulness of those people. T. Davison, Rod Spade, all those folks that fellowship down there off a of Rue Purchase Road. They had a vision and we are an extension of that vision. And I, it's good to give thanks to the living stones, the saints who have come before us, because we stand on the shoulders of those people. I know my Christian heritage. I know the people who built the churches and built the institutions that I got saved at and discipled in and now serve at. Some of these churches and institutions are thriving. Some of them are struggling and some of them have gone by the wayside. Like, for example, Washington Baba College, where I went and got my education at. The college closed its doors. Nevertheless, that legacy of those folks still lives on. It lives on in me. Brother Don Hess is telling me, um, he said, you remember George Miles? I said, yeah, George Miles, the president of, of the school many years. He remembered George Miles. He remembered George Miles coming down here to Southern Maryland and building the churches and supporting the ministries. And, and that's how we were affiliated with Washington Bible College Capital Bible Seminary. He passed on years ago and the school is closed. But the legacy, the house of God still lives on here. And I have decades of godly Christian influence packed on in up in here. And I'm attempting to infuse that into all of you. So that you'll know and believe and join in building the house. John Murdoch and I are connected through the legacy of Jack Wartson and the ministry of Water Life Bible Institute. His grandfather helped build and support that ministry. And the influence of that ministry reached to the maritime provinces of Canada. And it impacted me. And John and I talk about that common godly heritage that we share now here in Southern Maryland that was in two different parts of the world. That's just one small glimpse of the great big household, the great big family that we're all a part of, that you are a part of. Verse number six, Christ is the son over his own house. Whose house are we? That's you right there. Hebrews chapter three, verse six, you're in the passage. We are of the household. Fourth of July was lots of fun. Down in our community, people set off fireworks Sunday and then Monday, and people had their family and friends over and picnics and parties, and to top it all off, Monday night, we had a big dumpster fire. Someone threw some hot coals away into the dumpster, and it caught the whole thing on fire, so the whole community got to come out and stand in the yard and watch one kid with a garden hose try to put the thing out, but uh, it's just good times down there. And then, uh, and then, fortunately, the professionals came, the fire department came, and they saved the garbage for us. So, praise God, that garbage is safe. Seriously. 
we have so much to be thankful for here in America. I'm thankful for the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe versus Wade. The right to life movement is making a difference. CareNet's making a difference. We're making a difference. We keep praying. I'm thankful Maryland removed the unconstitutional infringement on our Second Amendment. Pew, pew, yay, shoot some guns off, celebrate. I'm thankful for the freedoms to meet with you and worship freely. I pray God's spirit will move across this land and we could have a revival and that God would bless America with a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit. As great as that would be, it pales in comparison. It's nowhere near the greatness, the blessing, the majestic wonder that comes from knowing we are Jesus' household. We have a holy calling. And Peter put it this way, didn't he? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God. His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the greatest thing that you could ever be part of. And yet, in all my time and experiences in church, yes, I have these examples of godly faithfulness, but I've also seen people walk away. I've heard people say, eh, not interested. Being part of the family got, nah, it's not for me. People have actually concluded that church is just a big waste of time. It's a negative. And I've seen many people come to that conclusion. Just simply can't be bothered with Jesus. That's a tragic mistake. And yet I'm quite sure there's somebody in this room that will make that same decision two years from now. Satan will come along and deceive you to leave your faith. His lies will work on you and you'll be all ha too happy to forget about Jesus and just walk down the broad road that leads to destruction with some other friends that you made along the way. Some of you, it's going to be hard times. You're, it's going to cause your faith to wither. There's going to be trials and there's going to be persecution and things aren't going to go the way you want and you're going to pray to God. He's not going to answer the way you want. You're going to get angry and you're going to say, ah, I don't believe it. And then others, it's the cares of this world, it's the pleasures, the, the riches, the self-glorification. It all is so rewarding. And I want it all and I want it now. And that's going to distract you from serving Jesus. This is happening back in Hebrews. It's happening in 2022. The author says, we are the family of God. We are the house of God. If we hold fast... The confidence, the rejoicing of hope, firm until the end. If we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope. Hold fast, Greek word, kateko, keeping a firm possession, keeping secure. Confidence, parousia, open without concealment, boldness. Confidence is boldness. Greek word for boast, kalchalmai. That which one glories. And then hope, ellipsis, expectations of good. Not just any good, expectations of eternal life. What is our hope? What is the, what is the boast of our hope? What is our confidence? Is it, is it in Moses, being a Jew, being American, being a good person? The hymn writer put it this way. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death 
of Christ my God. And all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. We are the house of God. If we hold firm to Jesus, if we hold firm, let me stress that, if we hold firm. Now, some of you are really not going to like that conditional clause, if we hold firm, because the ramification is, if we don't hold firm, then we're not in the house. Well, I like my doctrine of eternal security. I don't like the idea that I somehow could fall, let go of my faith, no longer be in the house. I like that passage in John where Jesus said in John chapter 10, the, uh, the context is in the, the uh, Jerusalem and he's, he's in the uh, temple and the portico of, of Solomon and uh, the Jews are surrounding him. And it says the Jews, it means the, the Sanhedrin, right? The Pharisees. And uh, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus says, I told you, you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify me, but you... Do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And my father who given to me is greater than all and no one can scratch them out of my father's hand. Oh, and by the way, my father and I are, are one. Ah, see, we're, we're in God's hand. We can't get out. Eternal security. Eh, except still a condition in that passage, isn't there? Verse 26, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they, they follow me. In order to be a sheep, in order to be in God's hand, you have to believe in Jesus. You got to listen and you got to follow. So the thing about doctrinal tenets the teachings of scripture, they're supposed to come out of what the text plainly says. The Bible defines faith as believing in Jesus, believing in ongoing action. Lots of play, people I grew up with, they, they say, I believe in Jesus. when they were six and seven and 10 years old. But then when they got to be their teenagers, they said, ah, I don't believe in that stuff. And last I seen some of them, they're still like that. And rejecting God, Jesus, Bible, and church. Is God going to say, uh-uh, nope, you prayed that prayer. You said the magic words when you were seven. That means you're in. Seems to me, belief looks like something. Seems to me, scripture defines and illustrates what faith ought to look like. It's going to be a big theme in Hebrews as we study this. Listening to Jesus. Following him is evidence that you believe. Rejecting Jesus and denying his word and letting go of this. That's not faith. That's what the audience is tempted to do. And that's why there's so many warnings in this book. Look again at chapter 3, verse number 1. Who is this warning to? Who is he talking to? Therefore, holy brothers, these are believers. If they hold fast. Well, if you're hanging on to Jesus, then these warnings don't apply to you because you're in the house. But if you reject Jesus, well, it's, it's his house. So then you're out. You'd be out of the house. You'd be in the outhouse. You don't want to go to the outhouse. My aunt had an outhouse. You don't want to use this. 
What a great honor to be in the house of God. We are in because of Jesus. Never let go of your faith in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. May we always worship and glorify you. May we hold fast. May we learn your words. May we listen to them. And may we follow them all the days of our lives. Praying all this in your holy name.